Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today, we are going to talk about everyone's favorite topic, cancel culture and political correctness. What do people think about this? Um, We have with us a scholar who's released a new report looking at public opinion on issues of free speech, cancel culture, issues of that sort. This is uh, Eric Kaufman, who is a professor of politics at Brickbeck University of London. Do I have that right? Brickbeck? It's uh, Birkbeck, it's called. Birkbeck. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, I definitely need to improve my uh, <laughs> eyeglasses prescription. But um, uh, yes, so uh, joining us from the other side of the pond, Eric Kaufman, the author of several books, uh, including uh, White Shift, uh, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? He's done a lot of work on uh, demography and uh, public opinion and in, in, in politics. Uh, so, and this new report is out with the Manhattan Institute. So uh, welcome to the program, Professor. Great to be here, Joyce. Okay, so why don't you summarize, uh, just you, you give people like the, the, the general <laughs> overview. What, what, is the, what is the subject of the report? What is it about? What are you looking at with this? Well, yeah, we're looking at basically attitudes to cancel culture and to uh, applied critical race theory. Uh, but, but the report essentially encapsulates these two things as part of the new culture war, um, pitting in a way uh, what I would call culturally liberal views favoring free speech, um, equal treatment, due process, science, and so on against an emerging position, uh, cultural socialism, which is more about uh, protecting identity groups from harm and redistributing uh, self-esteem and power to those groups from what are seen as dominant groups. And there's a clash between these two philosophies, and you see it play out on the cancel culture issue and on critical race theory. So that was our intention. Um, And the uh, you know, some of the key findings, oh, I, I, I could just jump the gun and get into that. Um, one of the key ones is, of course, how generational this is that really amongst those under age 30, um, there's, if anything, a slight edge for cultural socialism, I would say, that is prioritizing uh, equality amongst identity groups and protecting identity groups, it being a higher priority than uh, freedom of speech um, and uh, equal treatment and so on. Um, and, and it's radically different for the over 50s. So, so on a, I mean, a simple question like, and, and one thing I tried to do here was to get very concrete because everyone's in favor of free expression and everyone's against hate speech, but you kind of have to get concrete to figure out where people trade off. So for example, uh, do you support Google's firing James Damore for uh, questioning the gender ideology being, um, uh, you know, the gender policy that, that Google's uh, was propounding. And what you see there is two thirds of people under 25 support Google firing Demore and, and only about a third of those over 50. And that's a good example of where the age thing really matters. And it's not just because young people are more uh, left wing. Um, if you take sort of strong Democrats, 
under the age of 30 and strong de Democrats over the age of 60, there's a big difference. The, the older left-wingers are much less uh, culturally socialist, much more willing to defend against uh, people being fired for speech. So, so there is a, a big uh, shift, which I think is coming as the Gen Z and, and millennials enter into the workforce. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the, the different subgroups and, and how demographic factors, people see things differently. Um, but let's talk about first, just like the overall picture. And I should say, you know, there, there, so there's a difference in terminology uh, that's common in Europe versus the United States. In the United States, if you call someone a liberal, they think you're talking about Bernie Sanders, <laughs> right. AOC or whatever. Uh, uh, whereas in, in Europe, it tends to be more like, uh, you know, more of a, what we, we might call a classical liberal belief in free speech, limited, you know, freedom uh, of expression, uh, limited government, that sort of thing. And then it sounds like, uh, you talked about cultural socialism. I don't think you mean like, uh, Bernie Sanders, no like, economic stuff. You're talking about you know, uh, like the status of groups or you know, oppression, the, the CRT type of type of stuff. Do I have that correct? Yeah, absolutely right. I, I just um, I think there's a lot of, of use, though, in, in using the term cultural socialism, because it draws on many of the same broad principles, principles such as the idea that structural forces shape people's destiny, that that Radical transformation in structures is needed, uh, and radical redistribution of, of power and um, and wealth is needed between oppressor and oppressed. It's just that it's cultural identity groups instead of class groups that are the focus um, in in this new worldview. But yeah, you're absolutely right. the ter The traditional terminology in the U.S. obviously is liberal has meant left wing, uh, but I'm sort of using it in the sense of a kind of classical liberal. All right. And then the so the overall picture, I guess, is cancel culture, uh, pretty unpopular, but there is a substantial majority that w is in favor of it, uh, that views uh, inclusion or, or whatever you want to call it as, as being more important than free speech. And, and you know, uh, people should be censored or limited for that. Is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's right. So it's it's sort of two to one against overall is roughly the number for across across a range of these cancel culture instances like James Damore and Brandon Ike and um, uh, a number of more obscure academic cases. Uh, two to one. However, you know, in certain groups, the further left you go, the more support there is. So amongst the far left, it's, it's sort of 50-50, 50% actually supporting firing uh, people for speech uh, in these cases. And amongst younger people, there is a greater support as well. So both those things, age and ideology, um, there's actually quite a bit of support for cancel culture amongst the youngest and amongst the furthest left. Is there a way to sort of, uh, you know, sort of in the middle uh, or maybe taking a slightly, uh, you know, a, a position that sort of straddles these two extreme positions, if you will, you know, in the, in the, you know, you've given, I think in the, the article I saw, you talked about two different, you know, you, obviously you're talking about the, the James, 
uh, Drew Moore firing, but also you reference uh, polling on whether or not a a an employee should be allowed to be fired for saying a legal but racist comment. And it seems to me that there is a uh, I would say a classical liberal position that would say even if it's a legal comment, it's the the decision of the employer, right? So that there's a principled position to say, even if it's a legal speech, there's some behaviors that within the employee-employer relationship, the employer can set the standard. Is there, you know, how does that come into play both, I guess, politically? Is there, you know, is there a constituency that's focused on that type of principled distingu- uh, distinction? Yeah, yeah, really, uh, that's a really good and nuanced question. And you're right, there's a distinction between saying, oh, someone's speech was so bad they should be fired, which is sort of like an, a normative judgment. And then there is a view on what the law should be. You know, So for example, should the law prevent firms from firing people, so on. Um, and there is a group, particularly older, uh, if, if we take Republicans and conservatives, there's more support for what you're talking about amongst that older uh, Republican and conservative, more libertarian type. So there are some who would say, well, no, it's a firm's right to fire someone if, if they're a Trump supporter, if they're a Sanders supporter, they should be allowed to do that. Um, that so that view is out there and it's definitely, uh, a, there is a, a version of classical liberalism that would support that uh, and, and say that people have freedom of association and this is part of that uh, expression. So uh, that's a view. Uh, it's not a majority view. I, it, it's sort of a, a, a minority view in the sample, but it's there, um, including on the right. So there are some on the right who would, who would support that. I would say that amongst the younger Republicans and younger conservatives, that is a less popular view. They would generally be opposed to, uh, they would want to see companies prevented from doing that. Yeah. So how do we, how do you separate out the effects of age, ideology, race, obviously, you know, there's a, as you point out, there's a big difference in support, uh, depending on how old you are, but then younger people are also more left wing. And they also, at least in the United States, uh, tend to like, there's a higher share of racial minorities, um, which, you know, has an effect there. So like, is it, is it, is it all of these things together? Is it primarily just ideology and young people just are left wing? Or what do you think is going on there? Yeah, well, we I, I did a, a, a quite a bit of a statistical analysis. What that is essentially is where you can have all of these things chucked into a model and it'll tell you which ones matter and which ones don't. So ideology on a sort of very left to very right five point scale, that's the most important thing. But even when you control for that, age still really matters. Whereas if you then look at things like race and gender, those those were much less important. So those didn't those didn't seem to affect people's views as much as uh, ideology and, and, and age. Um, so if you were a if you're a black Republican versus a white Republican, the views is, are not going to are not going to vary that much. Uh, but if you're a an older Republican versus well, not so much an older Republican, but let's say an older Democrat versus a younger Democrat, then there's a significant difference. Yeah. So, one, do, do, do you think that that is a a a a generational difference based on a shift in 
politics and worldview? Or do you think that some of that, at least, is the the naivete of younger people? I mean, I'll go back to the, the example I raised before of someone uh, going into a workplace, spouting off racist comments uh, that are perfectly legal to say. Uh, but someone who hasn't actually worked in, you know, <laughs> spent years <laughs> like, like, oh, you should be allowed to say that you have a First Amendment right. Like, absolutely not. There are some things you simply simply cannot. I mean, you, it's, it's probably legal in some places to, you know, walk around nude, but you're not going to do it in a workplace. Right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, so there's the difference there, again, between norms of what you're allowed. You may be allowed to drop your pants. I don't know if you are or not. Um, and the law. <laughs> so. Uh, wouldn't advise. I, I, I just, I'm just trying to elevate the uh, elevate the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I don't think that's accounting for the difference by age. I mean, one of the reasons I say that. I mean, of course, we could imagine that you know by the time these people who are 25 are age 50, their views will have conformed with uh, people age 50 today. But uh, there is evidence. So we've got a number of studies. There's a survey called the General Social Survey, which is kind of a very long running U.S social survey. It's been going since 1972. And there was a recently a paper by three professors, mainly out of University of Southern California, that analyzed it. And basically, we're able to show that young people, you know, people the same age, a 20-year-old in 1980 versus 2010, um, have has a very different view on, you know, should it be permissible for a, a a racist to, to speak in public, for example. Uh, so, so on a number of these identity questions, there's been a real shift, and it's not just down to young people always be, you know, having a certain view or whatever. There's been a, a definite change uh, across the board in, in people's willingness to allow uh, people who are, uh, you know, racist or, or sexist or transphobic or whatever to speak. So these identity, race, sex, and gender identity categories carry a lot more freight or a lot more weight than they might have done, say, in the 1980s and 90s. So there's there's two other uh, demographic categories that I'm interested in. One, you know, I've I've read a lot of articles, seen some polling that suggests there there's a big gender gap in support for freedom of expression uh, versus like uh, you know restrictions on offensive speech. That that women are much more likely to say that offensive speech should be prohibited or whatever. It, looking at your data, uh, male versus female didn't seem to be a big factor. Am I reading that right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you are reading that right. I didn't pick up much on gender. And what I think's going on on gender and free speech is that this is very much amongst younger women. So amongst, and you can see this in the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. They've got a massive survey, like 57,000 students in their survey sample, and you can see these enormous gender differences. And we see them in the UK on these questions as well. So I think something's happening amongst younger uh, people that that's showing a bigger gender divide than has been the case. Uh, and I, I don't think I've seen a proper academic paper on that, but it's definitely a phenomenon. <laughs> but I don't think amongst middle-aged and older women, it's it's quite the same. Yeah. And then the the other question I had is about uh, like you know education or uh, you know maybe as a proxy for intelligence. I think that stereotype has traditionally been that more educated people are 
more likely to support freedom of expression, take a more absolutist line on that, as opposed to people of, you know, who have less educational attainment. Um, that, I, I don't know if that, that, that doesn't seem to be a big factor. Maybe, maybe it's reversed now. It didn't seem to be a big factor in what I looked at. I mean, I've seen some studies of this over time, which suggests that the, those with less education have become more tolerant at a slightly faster rate over time. Uh, so the differences by education are not as large as they once were. Like back in the 50s or 60s, you would have had, say, quite a few people uh, without a, a college degree saying, you know, a, uh, somebody who is a communist shouldn't be allowed or a homosexual shouldn't be allowed to speak publicly. You know, that kind of thing has declined dramatically, I'd say. So I, I didn't pick it up. I didn't pick up much of an education effect in, in the surveys that I was looking at. Um, um, yeah. So one one question, I guess, is this? And I, I mean, I I have uh, certainly I have a strong impression on this, but I guess the question is, it's 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 long been uh, kind of a stereotype that okay, you know, young people they tend to be uh, fairly left wing. Maybe they have some radical ideas, and then. As they age, they kind of mellow out and uh, and you know get a different perspective on things. Um, so one one interpretation, one thing you might say about this that is, yeah, okay, uh, young people, you know, they're they're not that supportive of free speech right now. But as they get older, you know, they'll, they'll start to look more like the older people in your survey. The other one, the other perspective would be, no, this is, this is something new. And what the, what the 20 year olds think now in 20 years, the 40 year olds will think. And, uh, you know, that maybe not if you're a big fan of, of robust freedom of speech, maybe a little worrying. What do you think about, you know, those scenarios? Uh, well, I mean, my view is that, that it is, something to be concerned about if you're worried about free speech. I mean, I, you know, we already have seen the, uh, the sort of activism in newsrooms and publishing houses and places where, where more millennial, uh, more millennials are entering into the workforce. They tend to be overrepresented in this employee activism. And I, I would expect to see more of that. I, the, the political science research seems to be mixed. There is evidence that people uh, do change which party they vote for over their lifetime, but uh, there's also a lot of evidence that people's beliefs are fairly stable. And certainly you can see on, for example, religious belief, or you can look at um, views on homosexuality or whatever, you can see that there's no question that the the newer, and, and, and regardless of what you think of these, uh, in many cases, these are good social changes, but there's no question that, that new cohorts came in with a new set of beliefs and they kept those beliefs through the life course and changed society as a result. And I'm inclined just from looking at some of that, some of those overtime studies to think that this is actually a very significant change and it will be retained as they get older. And so what it, what it looks like is we may be moving towards a situation where free speech is kind of a position held by 50% and cultural socialism by the other 50%. So it's going to be a much more balanced picture and this will be a bigger political issue. So that's sort of the way I would tend to see it 
unfolding unless there is uh, a major shift in the culture somehow. But right now, I would say I would be braced for these issues becoming more important. How is this playing out? Uh, I mean, I know there's it's playing out politically in a very in a sort of culture war, generic, you know, politicians saying things the politicians say, but is it, how is it coming down and sort of getting distilled down into policy or, or, you know, whether it's the United States or in Europe or other places, uh, you know, are, are you seeing laws enacted that really get into, you know, the, uh, that really, you know, that really are, you know, at the heart of either of these two positions? Well, yes, you are. I, I think in the U.S., the U.S. is sort of out in front or at least seems to be doing a lot more on things like critical race theory in schools and curriculum transparency. So it's more uh, focusing on the these issues around critical race theory. In Europe, I can certainly speak for Britain more than Europe where the issues are not as salient. But in Britain, there has been just in the last few years, for example, um, the government has started to move against things like, uh, you know, f- for example, um, simply stating which you know, gender recognition, uh, it's no longer, they've made it much harder to switch from being, say, uh, a man to a woman. That, that, that. So, so there's, there was a whole politics around that. It was sort of being processed through uh, elite institutions unproblematically with activist pressure from trans trans activist organizations uh and it was sort of moving through that they were moving towards um self-identification and automatic you know gender identification uh becoming a legal status and then that's now been reversed and similarly um there's there's legislation and academic freedom bill which is going to involve um a regulator essentially ensuring that universities are upholding free speech with the power to fine universities that don't do that. Um, I actually, I think this is an extremely important development um, and I think it's sort of world leading, but yeah, you are, you are already seeing this issue, you know, in policy terms, you're, you're seeing measures that are designed to, I guess, push back a little bit on the drift towards uh I guess I would call cultural socialism. So that's here in Britain, there has been some of that legislative and policy activity. Yeah. And I think that I guess where my mind's at is uh, here in the U S you know, based on our, our whole constitutional scheme, it's probably easier for an activist to uh, go into public schools and drive policy um, or uh, through, you know, the, the whole uh, financial arrangements we have in our, uh, you know, uh, in our in our universities because of all the federal funding there, you can drive policy. But as we get back into you know, issues of the workplace, where there's going to be greater constitutional protections for that type of interference, that seems like that might be uh, a, a harder push for uh, for activists to try to 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 change the uh, the really frankly the whole playing field of you know uh, essentially. Uh, upending uh, an employer's rights on how they govern their workplace. Uh, are you seeing whether in the U.S. or other places really a push to to sort of regulate, um, you know, whether it's you know gender identity or other speech within private businesses? How much how much of that activity is going on from a policy and lawmaking perspective? 
You can tell uh, the bad well, work for himself. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I you, I think you're right that that like in the U.S. there's more of this at will firing of people where you don't have to have a reason necessarily. Um, but in Europe, that's not the case, and so there have been some important court decisions. Certainly in Britain, you can't fire somebody, you know, if they have a protected philosophical belief. So a belief that someone who is biologically male cannot be a woman is now a, a protected philosophical belief. So you cannot fire somebody for tweeting that, you know, only biological females with two X chromosomes uh, are women. That 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 is no longer, there was a case called the Forstatter case. Um, and similarly, uh, there have been some cases around political discrimination. You can't uh, you can't fire somebody again for uh, political belief. So, so actually, political belief is a is a protected characteristic under European and, and British law. Um, similarly, there there are some other. So, Britain has a law that uh, teachers cannot indoctrinate. They must they can't sort of politically indoctrinate students. That is actually on the books as a law. Uh, and so there are a number of different legal areas, uh, laws that do actually constrain employers uh, in Britain and in Europe as well. But I, I think in the U.S. there's only certain jurisdictions where political or philosophical belief is protected category. I think Washington State is one, New Mexico is another, and there's a few other little places. But it's not uh, it's not widespread in the same way. Um, but there's, yeah, I mean, there is sort of uh, legislative activity here, too, on trying to reform, for example, what's called the Equality Act, which is somewhat related to civil rights legislation in the U.S., where trying to, at the, at the early stages of trying to move it away from disparate impact and disparities equals discrimination type reasoning to uh, essentially a presumption that would say, well, no, you have to actually show uh, discrimination, a disparity on its own is not going to be enough to to to, to compel uh, an organization to have to take action. Uh, and also, right now, the equalities legislation almost, you know, companies and organizations can claim that uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is necessary to fulfill their obligations under this act. I think there's going to be a move to try under the conservative government to try and make it very clear that those are not obligations under the act. And so, and, and also where the boundaries are in terms of equalities obligations and that they are subservient to a free speech protection. And so I think all in all of these little ways, there are, are attempts to bring these elite institutions to heal and to try to tame the activities of activists within these institutions who are trying to essentially expand the meaning of harassment and harm and all these sorts of things in ways that infringe on speech rights of employees. So here's a, here's a, a line of critique that I've heard sometimes is, okay, so you take, take the Brandon Ike example. This is a guy, he was, uh, I think he was the CEO or something of Mozilla, the software company and got fired because it was revealed he had made a political donation to the Proposition 8 campaign in California to uh, restore uh, California's ban on same-sex marriage, right? So um, well, one thing that I, I hear people say sometimes is, yes, you know, conservatives are uh, you know, more, like, more likely to say that he shouldn't have been fired for that. 
But that's not really about free speech. It's that they agree with Ike on that particular issue. Uh, and, you know, if a lot, same thing with Damore, uh, you know, people, maybe the reason why conservatives are more supportive of him in that case is that they just agree with him about what he said about, you know, uh, the lack of sex discrimination, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and if, if he had, if people said something that conservatives didn't like, uh, you know, something that was unpatriotic against the police or, uh, you know, Israel, whatever, you know, whatever other issue, then maybe it would be flipped and they would be uh, less supportive of, of freedom of expression. Is, is that so what does the data say on that if, if, uh, if it does? Well, I think it, it absolutely says what you, what you just said, that I, mean, <laughs> I think the the support from the right for free speech and from the left for – I mean that, there's a very strong degree of instrumentalism in both cases, right? So there, there were some questions on should a, a firm be allowed to fire an AOC supporter? Should a firm be allowed to fire a Trump supporter? And you could certainly see that – uh, Republicans were much more likely to say that firms should be allowed to fire an AOC supporter than a Trump supporter, uh, or, or, or you know. So, so there are a bunch of examples like that where, yeah, it's very clear that uh, you know conservatives have their sacred cows too, and and uh, you know, so the support for free speech is partly high. One of the reasons it's higher uh, probably now on the right is is simply because. Uh, the cultural left has a lot more institutional power now. You know, they, they set the taboos and norms in a way that prior to, oh, I don't know, especially prior to the 1960s, you know, it would have been the, the right that was setting the taboos. And, and that's one of the reasons I think you certainly saw in the general social survey, it was uh, those on the left who were more pro-free speech than those on the right. That's That's been the pattern really for, you know, for a long time. And it's only really starting in the 2000s, especially the 2010s, that that's changed. Um, so part of this is very instrumental. I, I think that's that's very much the case. In some ways, free speech is not a natural thing for people to support uh, or for a, for a large majority of people to support. Yeah, for, for stuff they don't agree with anyway. Let's talk about the media, because you have stuff about views about the media. You know, is the press biased? Is it the enemy of the people? Uh, <laughs> right. Well, what is the kind of major finding well, there? Well, I didn't. I didn't have a lot specifically on the. I had some trust questions, and you know, journalists tend to have a low rating. And and and, and what you what I was interested in was partisan differences. So you saw that only about fifteen percent of Republicans said they trusted the media, and I think amongst Democrats it was around in the low fifties, and the average was about thirty-seven, something like that. It was pretty low. Um, so there's no question there's lower trust in media amongst Republicans than amongst Democrats. Uh, what I thought was kind of interesting, though, in those questions was the difference between uh, science professors and social science humanities professors. So, so I'm a social science humanities professor, uh, so I'm interested in this. But what you clearly see is that actually Republicans trust in science, technology, engineering and math professors is pretty high. It's like 67% or something. It's not as high as for the Democrats who are in the upper 80s, but it's still pretty solid. Whereas when you go to social sciences and humanities professors, it goes from 67 down to 33 or something. So it's really tanks amongst Republicans and it doesn't really move that much amongst Democrats. So there's 
voters are able, even those without degrees, are able to make the distinction between uh, science professors and social science professors, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, uh, at the risk of showing my own biases and, and uh, I, I think maybe that difference is a little bit warranted in trust. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> some of, the, some of the, the issues with the research, many fine, you know, uh, some I assume are good people, but, um, uh, well, okay. So, you know, this, so you, your paper is, is pretty much, it's just descriptive. You're just giving the results of these various polling and like what the different factors are. But uh, I wonder if you did have any take, you know, what are the takeaways from this in terms of, um, you know, in particular for, for uh, those of us who are, who, who do like the idea of like robust debate and, and find the idea of like, you know, viewpoints uh, being disallowed, it kind of rankles. What, like, is there, like, what are the takeaways? I mean, are we just doomed? Uh, well, I think what I, I should say one takeaway, which I haven't mentioned, which is quite, quite large, I think, is the, the idea that, you know, this issue splits the Democrats. It splits the left and it largely mm-hmm. unites the right, both cancel culture and um, critical race theory. And so this is very obviously to the electoral advantage of Republicans and, and is a risk for Democrats. I, I suspect it's going to play a bigger role for that reason in elections. Um going forward. So that's one thing. And I think that will prompt more of a debate around some of the policy stuff. On the policy side, a couple of things. I mean, one is uh, there's actually quite a lot of bipartisan support for some of these, some of the measures that I polled, you know, one about um, sort of having some limits on organizations' ability to fire people for speech. That that was had generally bipartisan support, even though there were a lot of unsure people there. Um, that was one thing. The other thing was diversity training, uh, which half of the sample had experienced or had taken diversity training and of and a quarter of the sample had, had basically taken what you might think of as critical social justice themed diversity training, mentioning terms like white supremacy and patriarchy and so on. And, and one of the other things, that, so it's quite extensive, first of all, this isn't just a, a little storm in a teacup. Uh, but the other thing... Uh, that you see about this is that those who've taken diversity training are considerably more fearful of being fired uh, or or uh, essentially more being at risk of, of losing their jobs or reputations. And so the and, and this is not because people who take diversity training are a, of a certain political stripe. I mean, generally speaking, even controlling for everything else, it seems like there's something, uh, well, Take having taken diversity training is just associated with being more scared of being canceled, uh, significantly more scared. I mean, like twelve points more scared. So, uh, on top of the evidence we have that this training doesn't work or actually has sort of ba- uh, you know the reverse effect of that, that that it's intended to have. I mean, this is yet another piece of evidence that would suggest that this may worsen uh, the. Uh, impl- you know, the climate of at work. So again, a policy takeaway from that would be uh, pushing ahead with these sorts of diversity training can actually uh, chill the climate and make it um, less harmonious at work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, anyone, if uh, any of our listeners has been through a diversity training, maybe they can figure out why that might make people scared of losing their jobs. Uh, but <laughs> right. I don't know. It'll just be a mystery. <laughs> 
it's a, a, a lighter question. We, we often like to ask our guests for some uh, recommendation for like a, a movie or TV show, some sort of cultural product that in some way <laughs> vaguely re, uh, relates to the subject of the conversation. So in this case, uh, I'll, I'll leave it blood. It could be, it could be uh, about cancel culture. It could be about polling. It could be about, you know, generational divide. Well, the, the, the only one I'm, I'm struggling with, the only one I can think of is, is the chair. I don't know if you've, this, this Netflix series about this professor in New England and, and who gets kind of canceled and hounded out. I, I think that's probably the closest one. I think it's called The Chair. The Chair. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I have not heard of it, but I do have Netflix, so I will definitely check it out. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Uh, and uh, so if you want to read the report, you can find it at the Manhattan Institute. Um, where, uh, If people want more Eric Kaufman, where can they find more of your, uh, of your work and, and uh, insights? Well, um, you can check out my website, which is uh, www.snaps.net. That's S-N-E-P-S.net. Um, I'm also on Twitter at uh, EPKAUFM. Um, and yeah, so please do check it out. Um, and that's me. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you to uh, everyone for listening. Please be sure, if you haven't, to subscribe uh, and uh, be sure to rate us on all the platforms. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josiah. Thanks, Doug.